All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, uh, the First Peter, please. First Peter, we were in Ephesians in Bible class, weren't we? First Peter chapter 1, and I want to read five verses. First Peter chapter 1, the first five verses. Now, we have been looking at what we call the circumcision epistles. Maybe you never heard of that expression before. It'll do you good to hear it if you never have. Because these epistles that were written by James, Peter, John, Jude, and ultimately into the book of Revelation, they are written on purpose for the education and training and teaching of the Hebrew people, those who especially were saved among them through the preaching of the gospel of the amnesty that the apostle Peter preached at Pentecost. I want to explain again what I mean by amnesty. I read a gospel tract this week by what I would call a preacher of traditionalism and he mentioned that the gospel of God's grace was an amnesty but that's not the fact if you look up your dictionary you will see that an amnesty is the offer of a pardon to those who have sinned or transgressed against the government and that is not the kind of a gospel that we are receiving today but when Peter preached to the Jews at Pentecost and for the first ten years of his preaching until he got into the house of Cornelius in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we find that he was offering pardon to Jews and to Jews only, and it could only be accepted on repentance and water baptism. And these Jews then could expect the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ if all the Jews of that nation had accepted the amnesty. You see, their sin against the government of God was when God said to them, or God gave them their, his son, and he was born into this world to be a king. You remember the inscription that was written and placed over his cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then we find that he was asked the question, art thou a king then? And he said, yes, I am. He said, to this end was I born, and for this purpose or cause came I into this world. He came to be a king. He did not come to be the head of a church. He came to be a king. And the result of his becoming the head of the church is the result, we might say, of Israel having rejected the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ could not offer a bona fide offer of either the kingdom or the, himself as king until he had risen from the dead. So the first message, which is a Pentecostal message, is to the nation of Israel and not to a single solitary Gentile in this world. You have to get those things straightened in your mind. The message of Peter was a message of amnesty. Pardon was being offered to the Jewish people for having, saying, having said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him, crucify him. That was the greatest sin they could ever have committed as it was against the very government of God. Now in 1 Peter, as in James, we find a letter not written to the church. It is not to you. It is not about you. But we can get practical lessons out of it because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So if you acknowledge the inspiration of these uh, uh, epistles written by Jewish apostles of the circumcision or by those who were of the circumcision, such as this writer James, because... James is not an apostle of our Lord. He is the brother of our Lord. The apostle James was killed by Herod in, Je in uh, Acts chapter 12 and verses 1, 2, and 3 in that area. And so James is dead, but we find this to be written about 60 A.D. 
And we find that the Apostle Paul had already been saved and commissioned with the gospel of God's grace to the Gentile world. But this is written to Jewish believers of the gospel of the kingdom of the amnesty that Peter had so gloriously offered to the people of Israel at Pentecost in those ten, and in those ten subsequent years. Now if you get this wrong, you're going to be wrong in all of your thinking about the New Testament scripture. You know, a couple of weeks ago I went out to the mailbox and I got my mail. And as I was walking to the house looking for a letter possibly from Mark or something that was specially for me, uh, I saw that there was a letter there that was not addressed to me at all. It was addressed to a neighbor. And uh, I didn't go in the house and say, well, I know that this, these individuals intended it to be for me, but since it was put in my mailbox, it's mine as well as it is his, and I'm going to open it and read it. And you have to be careful when you read James and John and Jude and Peter and remember the people to whom these letters are being addressed. They are not being addressed to the churches because the church has become heir of a heavenly citizenship. They have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavens already. And the church has a revelation made to it, which is the revelation of the mystery, explained somewhat in chapter 16 of the book of Romans, verse 25. And we find that our ministry, or the ministry of Paul to us, is vastly different than the ministry of Peter to the saved Jews of the message of the amnesty. Get that into your thinking because you're, you have been ruined by Christendom's uh, wrong interpretation of a lot of things. Now I have a tract here, and it's written and put out by a very well-known uh, universal type of radio gospel preaching. I love the brother, and uh, I wish him Godspeed, but he's wrong on this, and I want to show it to you. He refers to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, we quote, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now here's his explanation of that. Peter is speaking of those who have been born again from above into God's family, and have been resurrected with Christ. Now, I could go as far as saying that these were born again from above into God's family, but I could not go as far as to say that these same born-again Jews have been resurrected with Christ. The only place he could get that is in Ephesians chapter 2 and 6, where the Apostle Paul is telling about us, the members of the body of Christ. We have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That there is no such statement concerning saved Jews of the gospel of the amnesty. But because Christendom wants to put the church in Pentecost, you have wrong interpretations. And as you go on in this, you find here is something else that you wouldn't go along with, I'm quite sure, if you dare to rightly divide the word of truth. He says this, quote, Peter tells us that as children of God, we are begotten unto a living hope. He does not tell us that we are begotten again unto a living hope. He tells us that the Jews who were saved in Peter, Peter's message at Pentecost, they are begotten again unto a living hope. He doesn't say that about us. And if I want to get what we have in Christ as Gentiles saved and members of the body of Christ, I must go to Paul and God has not revealed to Peter any of what he has revealed to Paul for the church. 
because Paul has, Peter has always been an apostle to the Jews or to the circumcision and he has not given the mystery message or the knowledge of the mystery to make known to us. Continuing that, quote, uh, Peter tells us, as children of God, we are begotten unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. He says this about that. This means that we in Christ Jesus shall also be resurrected from the dead. We shall then be brought into the presence of God in heaven where there is reserved for us a perfect inheritance unspotted and everlasting. He is not talking about us. If I want to know my future, I go to Paul, and you better go to Paul. Otherwise, you'll be all mixed up and raise your kids all mixed up. Don't you see what I mean? You've got to go to Paul if you want something concerning the body of Christ. You go to Peter if you want to know what God has in store for this earth of ours in the future when the people of Israel are back on the earth and in their inheritance. The inheritance of these people is vastly different than ours. And we'll bring that out as we go along. The first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What mixes a lot of people up is the fact that some of the same language has to be used about for us. If we are saved and if they are saved, they are saved by blood and we are saved by blood. They are saved by the work of Christ on the cross and we are saved by the work of Christ on the cross. But these Jews were saved for an earthly inheritance to be on the earth in the millennium in the, com in the coming day. God never promised heaven to the Old Testament people of God. Do you know that? Oh, I know heaven is mentioned here, but it simply tells us that there is a hope that's laid up for them in heaven that will explain that as time goes on. Heaven is never promised to a Jew. The earth is. God has plans for both the heavens and the earth. We are going to fill God's plans concerning the heavens. That's one reason why Philippians chapter 1 verse 26 says that we are citizens, or 326, pardon me, that we are already citizens of heaven. For our citizenship in, is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the country of our inheritance. That's our inheritance, but theirs is this earth of ours, and we will pursue, pursue that as time goes on. We find in this particular scripture we have to acknowledge first of all, never get into a book without saying who, to whom is this being addressed. If I had the draw to open that letter, I could be sued later on. They could cause a lot of trouble for opening someone else's mail. They would say, well, you see plainly that it's not addressed to you, Mr. Forward, it's addressed to Mr. Jones. And here you went ahead and opened it. And all because I thought that I had a bunch of mail put by one particular postman going by my house, stopping at my mailbox, mailbox, putting it there, 
and I would use that for an excuse or justification for opening somebody else's mail. Well, we find that Christendom today has a lot of gall too, I believe, in getting all this mail mixed up. There are 66 books. There are 13 books addressed to the church, the body of Christ. All the rest are not, but they are all profitable. That's why we spend so much time in the Old Testament, because it's all profitable. And we want to get the profit, but interpretation of 1 Peter belongs to Israel. It belongs to the remnant of that nation who became believers of uh, the Apostle Peter's message. So to whom written? It says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is writing to Jews who were dispersed. Now ever since about 600 B.C., now remember that, will you? 600 B.C., the people of Israel were under the power of Gentile rule. That's when we find that as far as the kingdom of God is concerned among the people of Israel were taken from them because of disobedience and so on and idolatry and being uh, unequal yoke as far as marriage is concerned. And they were uh, sent into Babylon to begin with in that awful exile there. And then from that time on to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for about 600 years, we find they were under the galling uh, thraldom of Gentile power. And for a few centuries, this was true as far as Roman power was concerned. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, we find that he came in when the people of Israel were not a government by themselves or among themselves, but they were under Rome. You know that. All the judgments, all of the decisions, decisions were made by Rome and uh, for the nation of Israel. Now who are these strangers? These strangers are those who could not, no longer live under Roman power in the land of Judea, which was later called Palestine, which is a Gentile name for the land of Judea. And so they went into vast, into other countries. And this is the explanation, please, if you go back to Acts chapter 1. And here's where a lot of people mistakenly believe that the people addressed by the Apostle Paul in the book, uh, in the book of Acts, rather by the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, were Gentiles as well as Jews. But that is not correct. Look at chapter 2, please, and at verse uh, 5. And I'll read to verse 8. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts at verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, what is the next word, please? Jews, isn't it? Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. So these Jews were part of the diaspora or of the dispersion because they could not live under the galling thraldom and yoke of Rome. They got out and they adopted other Gentile countries, became citizens of those countries, they forgot their Hebrew language, and they adopted the language of these Gentile countries. Look at that verse 5 again. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. So there were many languages that were represented there. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? 
And then they mentioned 15 Gentile countries into which they went and whose countries they adopted, and these are all Jews. What are they doing at Pentecost? Well, Pentecost belongs to Israel. It never belonged to a Gentile company. Gentiles are excluded from Pentecost and from any other feast of the Jews. Pentecost is a reflection of the Feast of the Jews. Seven feasts altogether in Leviticus chapter 23. These had to be observed by the Jews and not Gentiles. And Pentecost is not Gentile, it is Jewish. And these people from these 15 Gentile countries are all Jews and they come down from one thing. And that is to know that only at Jerusalem they can enjoy the Feast of Pentecost. And therefore, Peter gives them that Pentecostal message, which has nothing to do with the church, the body of Christ, but is an offer of amnesty to Jews who so recently said, we will not have this man to reign over us, crucify him. And he was crucified, but he was raised again from the dead. And so God sent the Apostle Peter out with a message of amnesty to them. And therefore the only people ever addressed by the Apostle Peter until the 10th chapter of the book of uh, Acts are Jews and never Gentiles. Stop putting the church where it doesn't belong. I sometimes think that if the, an unbiased person who is religious, of course, because everybody's religious, I don't care who he is, the atheist is religious, only denying it. If an, un, if, an, if an impartial person were to come and look over and listen to what Christendom is preaching today, you know what they would have to decide? That all preachers in Christendom are anti-Semitic. Because all you can come to is this. When you read First Peter by the average preacher in Christendom today, they will see nothing but the church in it, and the church is not in it. What are they doing with the Jew? The Jew is in that text, and they put him on the outside as though he's the off-scouring. The Jew is in this text. He's talking about saved Jews here. Let's go back to James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1. James is one of these uh, circumcision epistles. James chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, James is servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the what? Twelve, twelve tribes. <laughs> when was the church ever divided into twelve tribes? Will you tell me that? Do I have to ask you who the twelve tribes are? It's the Jewish nation, isn't it? To the twelve tribes, and these are scattered abroad. Because Peter is writing to the same bunch of people, only here he includes the saved and the unsaved, or James does rather. James includes the saved and the unsaved, all the twelve tribes, but has a special message for the believer among them. Here we find the apostle Peter is writing to the saved ones among them, and only to the saved. And therefore he writes the glowing language that he does. These are not Christians. These are not members of the body. They belong to another calling. And you and I are to be very careful to learn what is the hope of our calling. What is the glorious expectation of our calling. Or we are to learn to what we are called. You know there are two callings. You know that heaven is going to be filled with the saved people. You know that the earth is going to be filled with the saved people. All right, Israel has to do with the earth and the Gentiles that will be saved during the millennium. But as far as we are concerned, the body of Christ, the members of the body, ours is up there in heaven. That's where our glory is. 
And don't get these things mixed up. God has a purpose for both heaven and earth. And we find that these things are terribly mixed. All right, we find that these people here in verse 1 are strangers. And why are they strangers? Because they're in one of these 15 countries mentioned in, in uh, uh, Acts, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2. And here it says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Five are mentioned. But they also include other Gentile countries as well. These are districts, including countries. And so he's writing to strangers. Now I know there is a sense spiritually in which since I'm saved by the grace of God I am a stranger in this world. In Psalm 119 we learn that our Lord Jesus Christ when he was in this world was a stranger in the earth. That's the language. I am a stranger in the earth because of his convictions, because of what he believed, because of the purpose for which he came into the world. And everybody that accepts Christ as Savior becomes a stranger in the earth. You know why I am a stranger? Because I don't belong here. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to be in glory. That's why I am a stranger. I'm not where my citizenship is. Why are these Jews called strangers? Because they are not where their citizenship is. Their citizenship is in Judea, what we commonly call Palestine. And now we find that these people are strangers because they're living in strange countries. They're talking with a strange language. They think along the lines of strangers. And if you want to read how bad they got in that, those strange countries, you read the book of James, especially chapter 5. You will see how bad they became there. All right, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, elect. Now, I like that word elect, but I want to bring it out to you that it's a noun and it's not a verb. It doesn't say elected. It says elect. And every person that's saved by the grace of God, whether it's to a heavenly calling or to an earthly calling, they are elect. They have been accepted by God. And we, according to Paul, have been accepted in the Beloved in Ephesians chapter 1. Isn't that a glorious acceptance? We are accepted in the Beloved. These people were elect. Elect is a title. The Lord Jesus Christ is called elect precious in 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's no wonder then that those who believe on him are also called elect. They were not elected to be saved as opposed to those who were not elected and they could remain in their sins and never have an opportunity. No, that's elected a verb and this is elect a noun. If you are saved by the grace of God, you are one of his elect. One of his choice ones. I don't like the word chosen because, again, you get the wrong impression of the word chosen. Let's turn it to choice. You are choice in God's sight. And you know what that means. God is not going to have anybody in heaven but those who are choice in this world. And all of those who have accepted Christ as Savior whether we are good models of believers in Christ or not, we are a choice in that we have accepted Christ as our personal Savior. So in verse 1 we have strangers, and in verse 2 we have elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now you notice that there, are, there is a threefold work of the Trinity mentioned here. First of all, we find that the Father looks at these as being now his chosen ones, or his choice people among the people of Israel. 
All the Israelites were not choice individuals. Only those who have accepted the amnesty at the time of Pentecost, they have become the choice ones. So they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then you have the word sanctified. And that says there, uh, sanctif through sanctification of the Spirit. Now, some people think that things are a little backwards here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, but it's, it's exactly the way it is. Sanctification of the Spirit precedes and should precede in God's operation among us the sprinkling of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul doesn't use that phraseology because when Paul talks, he talks to the church made up of Gentiles. Gentiles know nothing about sprinkling of the blood. This is Hebrew language, of course, because he's writing to those who know something about the language. Why is sanctification of the Spirit, why does that precede obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ? Because it shows us how desperately we need salvation. It shows us how we, bad we are by nature and by practice. Do you know that you could not be saved, neither could I be saved, without the Holy Spirit of God separating my thoughts, which would rather be on things pertaining to myself and my material possessions and my job and my promotions and my pay and things like that? Why, the Holy Spirit has to work hard in the mind of the average individual who does not know Christ in order to get his mind on a track that will make him think about his eternity. We are so loath to think about eternity that it takes the setting apart of the mind by the power of the Holy Spirit to get us to think with God that we need Christ as our personal Savior. I was born in a very religious family, and you think as a very religious person in a very religious family, I would have been a Christian all the way back from the time that I was born. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today who kind of think they were born Christians. You ever hear those people who say, I was born in a Christian family, and that's it. I think I heard one of the big shots on television say that this week. Born in a Christian family. But I was born in a religious family. I don't know about Christian because I had to separate from their teachings for the gospel of God's grace. Maybe you can't go along with your parents with what they like you to believe because it's contrary to the word you can't go along with them. Don't be afraid to steer your own personal course because you're going to be personally answerable in the coming day for the choices that you make. You can't blame it on mom and dad that you were born in a modernist church where Christ is denied as far as his, his personality is concerned, his deity, his virgin birth, his sacrificial death on the cross. You can never stand before God and say, that's how I was raised to believe it. God says you had a Bible. You had a preacher to tell you something. And I'm here to tell you as that preacher that you need to be born again no matter how religious your past has been. No matter how good you see yourself to be in your sight, because in God's sight there is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. You need a new beginning, and that new beginning is called regeneration. It is called the new birth. And it's for Jews as well as for Gentiles. First mentioned in the 12th and 13th verses of John chapter 1, then picked up again in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, and then we find... Paul writing to Titus about the regeneration. 
the washing of regeneration. My, every one of us who are saved by the grace of God knows something about the washing of regeneration. All right, sanctification of the Spirit. You will never give a thought to your salvation. You will snugly sit in a church seat and do everything the preacher wants you to do until the Holy Spirit disturbs you to the point where you're starting to think along the terms of God's thoughts as revealed in His Word. And so many people who have accepted the rituals of the church have had to turn their backs upon it in favor of accepting Christ as Savior, much against possibly their parents or their preachers' will in the matter. All because they saw that if they didn't make a change and get saved by the grace of God, they'd be in hell for all eternity. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans in the United States of America who have found an easy way to say, I'm saved, I'm a Christian. I was born in a Christian family. My dad's a preacher, my grandfather's a preacher, my great-grandfather was a preacher, and I expect my son to be one. Don't put your kid in a preacher's profession if you can help it unless he's thoroughly convicted in his own heart and soul that he has passed from death into life and there's a need in the world for his particular gift. I haven't got a son that's preaching and I hope he never preaches unless he comes to, 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 to grips with certain realities concerning this the hardest of all jobs in all the world. And that is to stay true to the word of God because you don't make friends. This is not a way to make friends. It's not. That's why you don't see us growing very rapidly. Who wants the word rightly divided? You mean to say that I've got to make a difference between Jewish letters and Christian letters? Yes, you have to. Sure, why say with this particular person that he's writing about us when he's not writing about us? All right, then we get on and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us. Now these people were begotten. That means they experienced the new birth. Just like we find, well, if you look in the same chapter, verse 23. Verse 23 of chapter 1. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. What was the word of God by which they were recreated or born again? It was the word of the kingdom. The word of the amnesty that Peter preached. And he was never given the gospel of the grace of God. Take me up on it if you want to. Give me all the verses you have because you don't have any. He was never given the gospel of the grace of God. And God never switched his commission from Peter, from the gospel of the, of the kingdom, to the gospel of the grace of God. There was no switch. Because they had to preach that up until the end of the book of Acts. And the whole book of Acts is a picture or an understanding or the history of God's uh, definite attempts to get the people of Israel to their knees to accept Christ the risen one as their Messiah and then God says I will send you him back because he was raised to be your king oh where do you get that let's go to Acts chapter 2 please Acts chapter 2 why we all need a real study in the book of Acts don't we you ask your preacher to give you a study in the book of Acts and uh, I bet you'll have to ask some questions Acts chapter 2 you remember when Paul talked about the resurrection of Christ from the dead, what was he raised for in the third chapter of the book of Romans? 
is it the third or the fourth chapter, I guess. He was raised, fourth chapter. He was raised for our justification. That's Paul's language when he talks to us. But Peter's not talking to us. He's talking to the Jews. And what does he say in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30? Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to be the head of the church. Why you go to a lot of people today and all they can see from John the Baptist arm is a church. And there's nothing true about it. He was raised to sit on David's throne to be a king. And the church doesn't have a king. We have a head, a lord, not a king. Look in your hymn books. Don't get your uh, knowledge of, uh, of your doctrines out of a hymn book because you'll be singing about Christ being your king. And he's not your king. He's your head. He's Israel's king. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Remember, he says, For this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, to be their king. And look at Acts chapter 3, if you want to, at verse 19. This is the apostle Peter talking to the Jews. Remember, not a Gentile there. Don't put Gentiles here. What does he say in Acts chapter 3 at verse 19? Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Those times of refreshing were promised by the prophets in Old Testament times and promised only for the nation of Israel. And then it says, And he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution. That's how long he's going to stay up there in heaven in relation to the Jews until the time of restitution. They could have had those times of refreshing and restitution right then and there at Pentecost. But the Jews rejected it. When you get into Acts chapter 28 and Paul is there in Rome and you find what Paul has to say about those Jews because Paul presented a risen Messiah to those Jews, not preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but preaching the resurrection of Christ, which was, which was what we might call truth number one for them to receive. And they rejected it. So in Acts chapter 28 and 28, God turns his back upon the nation of Israel. And then, four years later, he sent Titus a Roman general to destroy Jerusalem and to burn and sack the temple, Herod's temple. So that brought an end to Jewish religion up until this day. And a Jew cannot tell you why at Passover, I think it's at Passover, yes, why they don't offer up a lamb anymore and they take a rooster and swing it over the head and break its neck that way and that's their offering. You go to a Jew and say, why do you do it that way? They have no answer for it. You know why? They have no temple. They have no Jerusalem. And anything that they've got now, they've gotten outside of the will of God. The Jewish nation is not recognized by God as a nation. It's recognized by us as one, but not by God. And will not be recognized as a nation until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the earth in the second coming. And he sets up his glorious millennial reign. And he sits on the throne of his glory. And the people of Israel, according to Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. And that's a future salvation for the people of Israel. God has still got Israel on the mind. You'd almost think all of Christendom had a dose of Calvinism the way they treat the Jew today. 
You don't know about Calvinism, do you? I was raised in it. Calvinism just is built into a religion that's built on a false view that God is forever finished with the Jews and the church is spiritual Israel. You see why I had to go somewhere else for the gospel of God's grace? Maybe you'll have to do the same thing. I don't know. But you can be saved right here. Not going to give me any credit or glory. Not going to give this little church any credit or glory if you accept Christ, but you'll be passing from death unto life. You'll become a born-again person. I'm going to talk about that lively hope. I wish we had time, but I'm getting tired. Ah, uh, let me see. It's 35. All I did was 35 minutes yet. I'll give you five more minutes. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope. Now, what is this living hope? Have you ever stopped to think of it? Why does the churches always want you to think of your hope in Christ? Well, we have a hope, but it's not this hope. Why is this called a living hope? Because it finds its basis in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the only thing. We find it's also a living hope because in the Old Testament scripture we have a place where we learn that as far as the people of Israel were concerned, I want you to turn in, to prove this. Ezekiel chapter 37, please. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 37, we have a lovely prophecy concerning Israel's future. You know what's going to happen in the future? Israel is going to become a nation. If she, if she isn't a nation now, how will she become a nation? By being raised out from the national graveyard in which she dwells. Why do you say I never heard of anything like that? But maybe this morning you will. Chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 37 at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out into in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. This is a huge graveyard. That's the way to look at it. And you know where Israel is today? She's in the graveyard of nations. She has died She's gone to bones in the graveyard of nations. And caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley. Lo, they were very dry. That means really dead. How long has she been dead? At least 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years since Christ died on the cross. And for 600 years previous to that, we find that she was apostatizing. She was in a very bad spiritual shape. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's what they need, is the word of the Lord. Have you listened to Ebon? What's his last name? Uh, yeah, Abba Ebon. Have you listened to him this week on Heritage? giving you a pretty good picture of Judaism all the way from the beginning. It's marvelous, honestly. But I think we heard the last of it. We heard three of them, and I think that's the last. I don't know. But you know, he tells 
You're very. He, he, he used to be. He used to be a diplomat with the nation of Israel. He's a very intelligent man, and he knows history about the Jews. But you know, when you listen to him, especially when it goes down into the history up until the death of Christ on the cross and why he came into the world, he was just a Jewish preacher as far as he was concerned. He doesn't see him an inkling of proof that he was the Messiah. And that smart man only is, is only a picture of the whole nation of Israel with all of their intelligence, with all of their military power with all of their ability to do things and to get things done. We find they don't see the messiahship of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are bland. And what do they need? They need the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Now if you want to know where they are in relation to this prophecy, you've got to go back to verse 8 or verse 7 where it says there was a shaking and the bones came together bone to bone and when I beheld all the sinews and the flesh came up upon them but there was no breath in them. I don't know how far advanced their resurrection is but I believe there's a beginning but there's no breath in them. They still need the word of the Lord. And that will come to them as it was, as it came to them at Pentecost. And they denied it. But it will come to them during the times of tribulation. Because you remember what Romans chapter 11 and verse 26. The day is coming when all Israel shall be saved. It doesn't mean every Jew. It means all Israel. The remnant will be saved. And those will be the people to enter into the land. So it says in verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the church of God. Is that what it says? Are all the members of the body of Christ. Is that what it is? That's how we confuse things in Christendom. It says these bones are the whole house of Israel. And don't try to put something else in it. Behold, they say, our bones are dry. Now what does it say about our hope? It says, our hope is lost. That's Israel's confession today. They are a people without any hope. They gave up their hope when they allowed Christ to be crucified because Christ was to be their hope and they killed him. And now their hope is lost. Now this lost hope now becomes a living hope by the announcement of Christ's resurrection. And so that whole valley of dry bones is just a picture of what Israel is today. They are in need of the word of God. They are in need of the, of the separation of the Holy Spirit of God of their mind to those things that they must think about, in, about their inheritance and so on. And so in our text we find that these people were, that he was writing to were saved and we thank God for it. And they were saved unto a living hope. And it's only these people who are saved at the time 
of Peter's preaching at Pentecost in those ten years of Pentecostal preaching that Peter is thinking about. They went back into those Gentile countries of their adoption. And now Peter writes this letter to them. And he as much as says it doesn't look like you've got a hope, but you do have a hope. It's alive. And it's going to come to you in a coming day at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And therefore it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Isn't that lovely language? You can take that and make an application to a present member of the body of Christ. But interpretation belongs to them. Where is Christ today? He's seated at the Father's right hand. And we find that Christ is the sum and substance. He is the embodiment. He is the personification of their hope and their inheritance. And when he returns, the hope returns with him. That's what it means when it says, it's up there, incorruptible and undefiled, and the fate's not away, reserved or guarded in heaven. Why is it guarded up there? Because it's in Christ. Christ is their hope. And that's what the Apostle Paul was trying to tell the Jews in Acts chapter 26, 27, and 28, that their hope was in a risen Christ. Now Christ has been raised to sit at the Father's right hand. He's going to stay there until the times of restitution. Then he's going to come back and he's going to bring about those times of restitution. This is not your hope that Peter is talking about. You've got a hope, but you've got a better hope than this. And thank God for it. And God wants you to know, according to the Apostle Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians, He wants you to know what is the hope of your calling. What is the expectation of your calling? And it's not to be on this earth in the future. It is to be in heaven, in the glory with Christ for all eternity. We'll continue where we leave off this morning, this evening, the Lord willing. And look at this particular inheritance that we're going to read about. We do know that the language that God often uses in divine inspiration for the blessing that has come to us Gentiles through the apostle of the Gentiles can be so much like that which is given to the apostle Peter to write about the Hebrew people, the Hebrew church. And that doesn't mean that there is no difference between the two. And I hope we can show that as we get along. We already showed you this morning something about that hope that we have in verse 3 where it talks about a living hope because their hope had died. And what a beautiful illustration of their dead hope is given to us in Ezekiel chapter 37 where we see the valley of dry bones in need of the pronouncement of God's word in order to bring life to them. Now I believe that somehow or other we must be in a little ways into the fulfillment of that. We might say bone is moving to bone because all of this is not going to take place in a moment of time. But not until God breathes upon those bones which have come bone to bone and sinews and flesh come onto these bones. But we find that it's necessary for God's breath to come upon them too. A lot of people know a lot about the Bible today. They have been taught a lot of things about the Bible, but there seems to be no breath of God about it. And without the breath of God, there can be no regeneration, there can be no spiritual understanding of the spiritual significance of God's Word. And so we thank God for those into whose hearts God has breathed the breath of life, as he did with Adam 
a long time ago in order that he might be brought into physical existence so that breath is necessary for us to be brought into a spiritual uh, existence. So we saw about the living hope. Now verse 4 says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now this morning I read from a very popular radio preacher who's highly accepted in the fundamental world, and we see how they distort these particular teachings by overlooking the fact that these scriptures are written to the Hebrew people who have a different hope and a different inheritance than us. And then instead of interpreting the scriptures, which is their business to interpret, and it's my business to interpret it, before I make an application, we find that they make the application to be the only thing they have to say about these Jewish scriptures so that the church, the body of Christ, and members of the church are left in the dark as to the real meaning of these uh, circumcision epistles. Now, as far as the inheritance concerned, the inheritance of Israel was the possession of the land of Israel. I hope you believe that. In Numbers, we have a wonderful book of many chapters. Turn to chapter 26, please, the book of Numbers. And in the, that book, you have the word inheritance mentioned many times. I did not count the number of references. But we do have references made to Israel's inheritance. And we have two particular types of inheritance. One reminds us of what we have. But the inheritance that's laid up for them in heaven and kept for those who are kept by the power of God in First Peter chapter 1, that inheritance is not like our inheritance at all. However, they do have one like ours. Those two inheritances that you read about in Numbers you will find the one is God, the Father, is the inheritance of the people of Israel. I am thine inheritance, is what God says in the book of Numbers. So God is their inheritance. And we thank God that we can say the same thing. It's good if you look up the Pauline epistles uh, for the word inheritance, and you'll find five or six record, uh, references that the Apostle Paul makes. And whatever he says about the inheritance, he says about us, about the members of the body. What Peter says about the inheritance, he, may, he says in relation to the nation of Israel and that remnant that were living in those particular times and scattered throughout various Gentile countries into which they have fled because of the Roman yoke. Now in chapter 26 of the book of Numbers and verse 53, we have uh, a statement, chapter 26 and verse 53, and it says unto thee, Unto these that the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. Now that's their inheritance. Now we know there are a lot of people today, children of wealthy parents or children of parents to whom a certain legacy will be left to them and they're going to inherit something at the death of the parents. And that generally consists of material things. None of us can leave a spiritual inheritance to our offspring, as much as we'd like to be able to leave eternal life with them so they can pick it up and go on, and we find that we can't do it, no matter how much we love them and no matter how much we like to see the unsaved members of our family saved by the grace of God. Now, we find that our inheritance that we get from our folks, it's of material nature naturally. But here we find that their inheritance is also material. It's not like ours, because ours as members of the body of Christ, is spiritual. That's what we learn in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenlies. And whatever is there, seated with the Lord Jesus Christ, and whatever inheritance we have, is a spiritual inheritance, it is a heavenly inheritance, and it's something vastly different than the land, the land of Judea, and I say Judea rather than Palestine because I remember this week Abba Ibon, he uh, referred to Judea in order to make sure that he was talking about the promised land. So Judea to them is the promised land, not Palestine. Palestine is an English word and they don't like to recognize anything that comes from, uh, not an English word, I mean uh, it's a Gentile expression, it comes from Gentiles and we find it's not an expression that they would like to use. They use the word Judea, and uh, that's uh, good to notice. Now in this verse, verse 53, unto thee, these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. I don't have to read any more in that book. Now you know what the inheritance is. There's a twofold type of inheritance. God is their inheritance just as he is ours. We can say the same thing. But we cannot put our finger upon one inch of this old terra firma and say that's my inheritance. We're going to leave terra firma as far as that's concerned for good. And, and uh, I'm not going to say about what the book of Revelation has to say because all of our thoughts that's been put into our minds about ruling and reigning as kings and priests, that's part of this uh, kind of teaching that you get... Uh, that's traditional teaching, and uh, I have taught it probably years ago, I'm quite sure I have, here in this church, but I refrain from doing so because <clears throat> I don't think that we can put ourselves in the book of Revelation and say we're going to come back and to rule and to reign, because most of those references refer to the Hebrew people who are going to be raised to that particular land. You see, for the Hebrew people, there is the first resurrection. You and I are not involved in the first resurrection, but the first resurrection is going to put Israel where they belong, and that's in the land. And, uh, but as far as our resurrection is concerned, that's tied up in the rapture, which is part of the divine secret or the mystery revealed through the Apostle Paul. And that's why it's given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 53 for the first time. All right, here we find, it says in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, and so on. Now, this is not a message to us. Let's remember that. Members of the body church concerning our hope, for Paul is the appointed teacher for the church. Now, let's, let us re remember that. I think it's in Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, where you have that statement made about Paul and uh, I, I know we're all accustomed to that we are all well trained along these lines but there will be recipients of uh, these tapes especially the Hollanders and those that go to England and Germany uh, they'll be getting this uh, particular teaching too and they would be glad to get this but in Romans chapter 11 and verse uh, 33 uh, that's not it either uh, let me see 23, no. Well, now, I've lost it. I wish I didn't. And it, huh? 13, thank you. 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. All right, now, he says, I speak to you Gentiles. Peter doesn't speak to us Gentiles. James doesn't speak to us or about us Gentiles. None of them do. 
The Apostle John doesn't uh, speak to us Gentiles, neither does the book of Revelation or the same John writing about the book of Revelation, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has to do with the second coming. And the rapture is not in that book, no matter how much people try to put it in the fourth chapter and verse 1 of the book of Revelation. But he says here, for I speak to you Gentiles. Put the emphasis on the pronoun I if you want to. For I speak unto you Gentiles. No one else. He is the only apostle to the Gentiles. And because he is the only one, and there's such a great responsibility placed upon him, he says, I magnify mine office, and I'm glad he did. And he stayed with it and did a wonderful job in the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul is the only revelator of truth for the church. We have to remember this. A lot of people shy away from this. We are not making friends, as I said this morning in church. Uh, we are not friends. This is not a good way to make friends and influence people at all. You'll find that the masses all around us don't want this because it interferes with what they have had passed down through mother and dad and grandmom and grandfather and so on. And uh, that's one reason why they stay with it, I suppose. Now, we do a tremendous injury to the body members when we confuse these particular things. If we had them straightened out and kept straight on these things, we would not confuse the church. But the church, the body of Christ, is terribly confused. Of course, including those who are not, mem not members of the body and yet claim to be saved in the denominations of Christendom. Like I said this morning, it almost looked as though Christendom hated the Jews. It almost looked as though they were anti-Semitic in their attitude because they never give the Jews that which belongs to them. They're always ready to steal from Israel what belongs to Israel, and they're slow to tell us, isn't that a fact? They're slow to tell us anything about the mystery which was revealed to the Apostle Paul, and you just don't get any messages about the mystery because they don't seem to know anything about it. And then, of course, they relate that mystery to Matthew chapter 13, where, the, uh, where uh, Matthew tells us about the uh, mystery of the kingdom of heaven, and ours is not the kingdom of heaven. And that really means the mystery of the millennial reign of Christ. And they confuse that with the mystery that was given to the Apostle Paul. Now the question is, how do we explain then the phrase reserved in heaven for you? Doesn't that sound like it's for heavenly people? Doesn't it sound like these Jews are on the way to heaven? Well, it doesn't, unless you want to read that into that. If you believe now that these Jews are members of the body of Christ and that the church started at Pentecost, then you have a right to confuse all these things, I suppose, and say that our inheritance is up there in heaven. Our inheritance is heaven itself. And we find that it's there in heaven for these people because it resides in the person of Christ. And we find that this inheritance, which is incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, speaks of the Christ of God as being the very embodiment of Israel's hope because he is everything that is said about that inheritance. He is incorruptible. He is undefiled. He fades not away. And when he comes back, he's going to come back as Israel's inheritance and he's going to put them in Israel's land. And that's their inheritance. And so we don't have to talk or think about our inheritance or the inheritance that Paul talks about in Ephesians and Colossians. We just stay with our own inheritance uh, from Paul. And as far as this one is concerned, we want to give it to the people to whom it belongs, and that's Israel. All right, then when you get into verse 5, it says, who are kept by the power of God. Now that reminds us, of course, of eternal security. 
And we say, well, I, could, uh, I believe that would apply to the members of the body of Christ. But he's not talking about members of the body of Christ. Those people who are saved under Paul's ministry, and these to whom James is writing, and Jude, and Peter, and John, they are being kept by the power of God until that particular time when at the revelation or the appearing, the public visible appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to make both the hope and the inheritance a reality to them. So in verse 5, it is to this that the remnant of Israel are kept by the power of God, to the inheritance and to this particular hope. And all because and only because they are believers. And that's what is meant by who are kept by the power of God through faith. That's all they can boast of, and that is they have placed their faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot press the issue of priority. They cannot say we have been the people of God for four centuries prior to uh, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. No, they can't make any boast like that at all. They can't say we have kept the law, we have kept the peace, and we have done everything possible in order to encourage God to make all these promises good to us because they have it. It's only because of faith. And since that's the same as, uh, what, same as our boast, because it's only by faith that we will enter into our inheritance, which is heaven, not this earth. Theirs is material, ours is spiritual. Yet we can't say it's by any achievement of our own. We have to admit with the Apostle Paul, and if you read in Romans chapter uh, 8, you would get all the scriptures you would need on eternal security and our being kept Let's go to Romans chapter 8 to read a few simple verses that's good for us to read every once in a while. Romans chapter 8. If you ever get down in the dumps, you ought to read Romans chapter 8 and begin there where it tells us about Christ's death for us. Uh, let's see, over at verse 31. Romans chapter 8 at verse 31. Now these are Paul's words. Paul doesn't sound at all like Peter because Peter can always refer to an Old Testament episode as an illustration of what he's trying to say. Paul can't use such illustrations because I'm afraid the Gentiles would say to Paul, ye are mad, because they wouldn't understand it. They had no history of the people of Israel. Verse 31 says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't that eternal security? My, our hope and our inheritance is sure just on that one verse. And then he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The language here is to show us that there's nothing that we have done that we can uh, bring before God. Uh, in order to prove that we have a right to our inheritance and a right to our hope, Paul is talking about what Christ has done and what he's doing, not only past tense, but also present tense. In verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And then the last phrase for the last part of this quotation, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There can be no separation from between a member of the body of Christ and the person of Christ himself. God's love uh, goes out to every believer regardless of how far they've gone astray, regardless how unlike Christians they are in their everyday walk. 
Now there is a salvation that is promised to that nation, of course. So let's look at that fifth verse. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to turn with me thinking about this word kept now, because we know we are kept. And the keeping is the work of our Lord Jesus, who both died for us and lives to intercede for us. But when we go to Peter, then we can take an Old Testament scripture like Psalm 121. Psalm 121. What lovely statements we get in these psalms. I'm so glad that we're in the psalms on Wednesday nights. Psalm 121. And verses 4 and 5. And there it says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel <coughs> shall neither slumber nor sleep. So who is he that keeps Israel? And remember, Israel is not the church. And God is not keeping Israel along with the church. He deals with one company at one time. But he is keeping Israel. He is keeping those who became members of the, body of the uh, Hebrew church. And he's keeping them for their inheritance and for their possession of the land in the future. And he is their keeper. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And then verse 5 in the first part, it says, The Lord is thy keeper. So match that with what we have in, the, in the 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God. God has always been the keeper of Israel. Why is it that we can't decimate the nation of Israel today? It's got enough enemies to wipe it out for sure. All God would have to do is lend Hitler just a little power and uh, give, put, give his agreement to what Hitler's plans were at the time. And that was to get rid of the Jew, get rid of the very memory of a Jew. And uh, he could have uh, carried that plan out. But God, of course, was not in their plan. And Hitler will yet have to pay. And I think West Germany is paying along with Hitler. And I think the price is still being paid for the heinous things that were committed back there in the 40s. All right. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this ought to be a clue that it's not the church that they had spoken about. You and I already are possessors of eternal life. We have been born again, so have these. But the salvation that he's talking about here is something that's in the future. <coughs> we don't have any... <coughs> salvation that's set apart for us in the future unless it's the completion of that which has begun when we got saved by the grace of God and that will be completed when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the air to catch us to be with himself the change of our bodies the completion of resurrection and that beautiful change into a glorified body like and unto his own but that's not what he's talking about here he says unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time now what is this last time when you go back to the book of Joel, as the Apostle Peter did when he uh, said in the second chapter of the book of Acts that uh, these days of uh, the Holy Spirit's coming among the people of Israel at Pentecost, that that was prophesied by Joel, it says there that Joel says that it would take place in the last days. Those were Israel's last days. Now, traditionally, we find that Christendom wants to make those last days the first days of the church. And you can't have it both ways. There are the last days for the people of Israel. Now, those last days only lasted till the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, or rather up to 70 AD. Those were Israel's last days. 
they were cut off, we might say, by the destruction of Jerusalem and by the, uh, the burning and the destruction of the temple, which ended Israel's religious uh, national uh, privileges. And she ceased to be a nation before God then. All right, that cut the last days off. But the last days are not finished. Because everything that Joel said about the last days have not been completed. And they've got to be completed because every promise of God is yea and amen in Christ. And every prophecy has to be completely fulfilled. When are the last days going to, uh, going to continue? When God is finished with these days of grace for us. And at the end of these days of grace, there will be the rapture. And then the last days of the people of Israel will once again begin. So if you pull out from this 2,000 period, year period of time, if you pull that out of the whole picture and push everything together, you would find that the times of tribulation immediately follow, shall we say, the destruction of Jerusalem. If you really get that picture in your mind now, it broke off at the destruction of Jerusalem, but it will begin again with the, with the uh, great tribulation, or rather the days of tribulation, in, uh, after the church has been raptured out. So if you pull out this parenthetical period of grace and push everything close together, you would see that God would bring about the last days uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem, and uh, those things would take place then. All right, now it says in the last time, doesn't it? In the last time. Now, those words, in the last time, are uh, very important because that represents the end of the tribulation. And that is Israel's last days, and her last days will be brought about by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he returns, he's going to return with salvation, shall we say, for the people of Israel. And that's going to be the completion of that promise that we have in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Now I'll have to uh, read it because my mind is not the first opening word. Romans chapter 11 and verses 25 and 26. And this is what it says. It's a wonderful prophecy, of course, and it's still for the future. Verses 25 and 26 of Romans 11 says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Not that all Israel is blind. If you have ever seen a saved Jew, that saved Jew is an indication that not all Israel is blind. They have been partially blinded. Their blindness has been total, total where there is blindness, but only a part of the nation of Israel is totally blind. A few here and there have come to faith in Christ and become members, members of the body of Christ. All right, it says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And that's going, when it's going to happen. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes back and to turn ungodliness away from Jacob, and it's when he comes out of Zion, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. That Deliverer is capitalized in my Bible, showing that it's deity, and it's the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, that for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And then look at verses 30 and 31. For as ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these 
also now not believed that they through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. So it's for a period of time. God has not set them aside completely or permanently. It's for a period of time. It's a long period of course but still God is mindful of that nation. He will not allow them be, to be destroyed as a nation. They will never be decimated as far as their, their human life on this earth is concerned. And uh, they'll always have an opportunity as individuals to accept Christ as Savior, thereby becoming members of the body of Christ. In Matthew chapter, let me say, there is a salvation promise to that nation. And we must remember that Israel will always be regarded as a nation. The nation, of course, will consist in the future of the remnant of believers. And uh, it's the very nation that's spoken of by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 21 and 43. Let's look at that. Because we have to rightly divide the word. We have to put Israel where she belongs so that we know where we are in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. The Lord Jesus said, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Guess who the nation is as far as Christendom's interpretation is concerned? It's the body of Christ. I've heard that so many times since I've been saved by the grace of God. That God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is talking about the church here. He's going to take it away from you Jews and give it to the Gentile church. Who's yet someday going to be the bride. And that's, that's not a truth either. Get this. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And that nation is the nation that the apostle Peter and James and John were writing to. They were the remnant of believers among a nation of unbelievers, but they were the, became the, they formed in, in their very youth, we might say, the nation of believers who would bring forth the fruits thereof. So we find that uh, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ were also spoken by the Apostle Peter. And let's look at chapter 2 and verse 9, and here's another misinterpretation of Scripture given by Christendom today. In chapter 2, verse 9, it talks about that priesthood. It says that we are a chosen generation. That's not us. That's not members of the body of Christ. How many times haven't I preached? And how many times haven't you believed and maybe passed it on to someone else that there is a priesthood of believers in the Bible? And we go back to this particular portion of scriptures. That's before you were told to see what the address of the people to whom these letters are written and see who they are addressed to, which is very important. Peter says, as he writes to these Jews scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. In God's sight, though that handful of, of believers, that remnant was a holy nation, a peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now you and I have been called out of darkness into his light. We should show forth his praises. But that doesn't mean that this particular scripture does not refer to the nation of Israel. And so that's a good thing to remember. And uh, that's what we have in this chapter. And to this glorious future, these people are being kept. Isn't that a wonderful thing? They will always be a nation. Their church can only be a body and never a nation. 
And it's a good thing to get these things uh, straight. Now we don't need to take from Israel that which belongs to them when we have Paul telling us of our being kept by God's power. And we have those scriptures read in Romans chapter 8, 31 to 34. And then there's that scripture, of course, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, uh, that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a lovely promise? I think we all have to say amen to that. It is a wonderful promise. Now that ready to be revealed in the last time, Israel's last days, will end with a tribulation. Uh, at the end of the tribulation. And then Christ will return. Then Christ shall return with Israel's living hope with a salvation that Paul speaks of in Romans 11.26. I hope this is all clear in your minds as to what there is in the future for Israel. Now just for a few more minutes, I uh, want to look at verse 6. Let's get a start there anyway. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, or in heaviness, through manifold temptations. Now the heaviness here is due to Israel's rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the remnant has to pay for it. The nation of Israel have no time nor place for the, uh, for the remnant, for those who believe that Christ is the Messiah. For this, I want to remind you what we had in the book of James just a few Sundays ago. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4 rather, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trial of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We find that these people were cruelly persecuted by the nation at large because they lived in the midst of this nation while they had adopted a Gentile country and adopted a Gentile tongue. And there they were outside of the land of Judea. And uh, it was uh, something that, uh, that could, they could hardly put up with. And that's why James writes about it. And, and we also find that Peter writes about it, of course. When you look at James chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5, we see what the remnant had to put up with. It says, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. He's talking to the unsaved element of the twelve tribes to whom he is writing. I told you that James writes to the whole twelve tribes, including the unconverted. But the apostle Peter writes to the remnant in the twelve tribes. Now the remnant have to pay dearly for their... Uh, love for the Lord Jesus Christ and their acceptance of his Messiahship. Verse 2 says in James, four, uh, James 5, uh, Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields and these laborers undoubtedly were the saved, the remnant among them, and they weren't being paid their wages. They, they had the wages withheld from them, uh, which is of you kept back by fraud. It says, Crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now that shows you this is entirely Jewish. <laughs> Paul would never use that title of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means the Lord of hosts. He would never use it 
uh, on Gentiles. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just and he doth not resist you. So you see what the remnant had to put up with. Now that's the reason why he says in that sixth verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation. I want you to look at a verse of scripture in 1 Thessalonians because the Apostle Paul uses what he knows about the condition of things among the remnant who live among the unbelieving nation of Israel. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 14, I think it is, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14. For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Now some of the Gentiles were passing through some of the same experiences, but he's showing how that the Jews received an awful lot of damage and harm from their own countrymen. Isn't it sad when you get it from your own countrymen? Fellow members of the 12 tribes dealing that way with people all because they have put their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Verse 7, for the last one, that the trial of your faith in, in these experiences, God wants them to know it's simply a trial of their faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice how often last times at the appearing of Jesus Christ is mentioned here? It's mentioned again in verse 13. Look at it. Verse 13 of the same chapter. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the same Greek word is used for the word appearing in verse 7, appearing of Jesus Christ, as is used in verse 13 at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word is, word is apocalyptus, which means the revelation, the public appearing, the visible features of our Lord Jesus Christ as seen by the people of Israel in the future when he returns to them. You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to us, everybody's not going to see him. We are going to meet him in the air, and as far as the balance of the world is concerned, every person outside the body of Christ, they are not going to see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the rapture. But you remember what the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, and that's a good proof, of course, that that wonderful book of prophecy is written for the benefit of the Jews. He says in verse, uh, verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds. That's chapter 1 of Revelation and verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I don't see how we can continue to try to teach the masses of Christendom and yet be so confused about these simple things. The difference between the rapture and the, and the public visible appearing of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one is to the church, the body of Christ, and that will be take place in the air. The other is visibly on this earth and only to the nation of Israel who are now being kept by the power of God ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And Christ will not come until it happens to be the last time or the last days for the nation of Israel. With that, we're going to close. I think our time is pretty well taken up. And we'll begin with verse 8 next week. Uh, and, uh, well, I might skip down because on a Sunday morning you like to get in the word of the gospel, of course, and I like to get into verses 18, 19, and 20, and we'll squeeze that in somehow then. So may the Lord bless this uh, word to our hearts. And until next week, uh, stay in your book, continue to write the divided, and read from verse 8 on uh, in First Peter chapter 1. May the Lord bless.